What's up, everyone? How you guys doing? This will be episode 54 of the Strength and Success Show. Just waiting for Riley to join on here, and we'll start recording the live broadcast of the podcast. We are cool than other people. Cooler, I should say. Since we do record this live on IG, you guys can... There she is, so we'll see if she has a request. You guys can ask questions on here, and of course, the podcast drops every single Monday on all podcast platforms. So, 1.30. Should be used to that by now. <laughs> and then the podcast drops every Monday, so if you can't stick around all day here, you guys can join back on Monday. What's up, Riley? How you doing? Hello. That was, that was a little tamer than the normal hello. That was like, hello. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm ready for dinner. I was just about to say, do you still have la fatigue? La <laughs> yeah. fatigue is very high. <laughs> well, unluckily for you, I'm not caffeinated that much yet, but I'm always this animated, so you just have to catch up. Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm not caffeinated either. I have water. I have swamp water, which Matt is, you know, going to yell at me as. And then we went cotton candy today. Oh, I have black cherry today. I had a real tough choice between cotton candy and red, white, and blue. Uh, so I ended up with a cotton candy. I don't know. I was feeling frilly. But this is episode 54, Strength and Success Show slash podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this one seek only solutions which we'll talk about in a second first and foremost riley how are you i'm doing very well uh i heard you say that we are cool cooler than other people and i absolutely concur um so i'm doing very well i am um feeling still good coming off of the deadlift pr so having a good week 45 for two at about an rpe nine which means 45 could have gone for Three, especially since we all know that Riley can grind the shit out of a deadlift for 17 seconds. So that was pretty cool. Yes, I can. <laughs> that is my superpower. Yeah, confidence in bench and, and deadlifts right now are, are screaming high. So that's good. Uh, squats wasn't bad. Just have a little uh, little discomfort that Tony's going to take care of for you tomorrow. So that's good. Yeah, squats not bad. Um, just things not feel so great. So I'm still, you know, I, I mean, I'm still projecting in the fours with what we're hitting. It's just feeling not good. So... We're, we're trying to move better now. <laughs> it's because you're old. <laughs> I'm like 800 years old. <laughs> wow, you've doubled. I think the last time I mentioned that, you were like 400. <laughs> I progress faster than others. The, the reverse of Benjamin Button? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I progress faster than everyone else. So yeah, I'm like 800 years old on the inside. Powerlifting gives you progeria really quickly. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So true. So uh, this one actually popped in my head of Seeking Only Solutions. Big shout out to Mike, Mr. Push It Real Good, who does usually listen to the podcast when downloads every Monday. Sometimes he hops on here. He's one of my clients. And he talked about last week's episode talking directly to him. He's got some life stressors right now. We all have life stressors. If you're over the age of 12, life generally gets more difficult. And it's something that I've talked about before. Riley's talked about it before. If you are staring at the problem, you are unable to see the solution. How many times do we look around and we can't find something that's right in front of our face because we're staring at everything instead of narrowing our focus? And it's one of those things where we need to narrow our focus to only look for solutions because the problem isn't going to change. And that problem can be something minor or it can be something major, but the problem won't change unless you do, which means you have to come up with the solution. So I like the concept of really only looking for solutions instead of staring at the problem. And what I mean by that, of course, that's very cliche to say, is if you're constantly telling everybody about your problems, you're only looking at the problem. 
you are not seeking out a solution. You're telling people to get empathy or sympathy or commiserate because misery loves company. I was very guilty of that when shit was bad. But it's one of those things where if you're looking for solutions, you're gonna find a way out of that hole. And I jokingly told someone, I think it might even been Riley at one point or a couple of people, the best part about hitting bottom is all you can see is up. And it changes your focus, it changes your scope where you are looking upwards at opportunities instead of down at missed possibilities because you can't change those. It's really, really important no matter what's happening in life that you're seeking out solutions only because you will not ever be able to change the problem. Yeah, being hyper-focused on the, the problem really does like dilute your sense of being able to actually find a solution. Um, generally, if a client will message me and tell me that they can't do something, my response is generally, okay, what can you do? Because if you're so hyper-focused on what you can't do, you have no ability to even have the foresight to make an adjustment. This could be something very simple as um, like, uh, you use this example a couple times, like Melissa had Buffalo bar bench press and it was busy, it was being taken. So instead of being like, well, I can't, I can't do my workout. I, can't, I don't have the Buffalo bar. She was like, okay, what can I do? I can't do the wide grip bench press because it's the same intent. Um, you know, and like when people are struggling in life, like even outside of powerlifting, they're, you know, they're like, oh, I'm having such a bad day. I can't go do this. I can't go do that. I can't do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, generally, when someone comes to me with that problem, I usually ask them like, what, what is it that you've done for yourself recently that would get you out of this like negative mindset? I had this conversation with a client recently and um, the client said, you know, I haven't, I don't, I, it's been so long since I've done something for myself. I'm not really sure what I would even do. And it could be something as simple as like taking yourself out for coffee, um, you know, like going on a walk or whatever. But like when you're so hyper-focused on the absolute negatives, you have a one track mind. Like we end up getting, we end up getting blinders when we don't want blinders. Like we've talked about blinders a lot with your own progress. And like, if you're constantly comparing yourself to everyone else on open powerlifting or everyone else in your weight class or your neighbor or someone who's been doing this longer than you, if you're constantly comparing yourself to those people, you don't have blinders and you're going to, um, you're trying to seek external validation or you're trying to find ways to not see progress and when you get on that, it's just a, like one negative track over and over and over and over again. Um, so you, in this situation with the negatives, you really, really want to, you really end up having blinders because you are so hyper-focused on those negatives. And like, I think it's kind of human nature in general for people to fixate on the negatives because it's so much easier to play the woe is me victim game than it is to actually take action and take solution or have solutions because people are generally really afraid of change or um, they're really afraid of trying and failing. And when you have to take action to improve something, you are having to try. And if you fail, it feels terrible. But like, you know, no one wants to fail. No one's like, damn, I really love failing. That's awesome. Um, no one does that. So when you try something and you fail, it makes you feel bad, but at least you found a way that is, at least you found something that didn't work. So that way you can find more things that work. We talked about that before, like a, mis a failure is really only finding however many ways something won't work. So going forward, you can kind of narrow down your focus and be like, okay, these are the things that didn't work. Here are all the things that could work. Mike put this in a really good perspective when we were talking yesterday or the day before they blend together for me every day is exactly the same. But he said, you know, he was guilty of this because he wasn't looking for the solution or other people don't look for the solution because the solution takes work. The solution takes effort. It's a lot easier to sit in the problem 
than it is to do the work that's needed to find the solution or to be the solution. And so I think that's what I'm really narrowing my focus on here is yes, the solution is going to be more work. It can be small and simple. Um, there was one time where Riley and I were training together and the mono was broken as far as the jack. We manually adjusted it to her height and I took the squats out from her height. Didn't matter, like that was the solution. It meant a little bit more work on my end, but so what? Because if we needed to use the mono, that was the only way it was gonna happen. You can't change it once the bar's loaded. So sometimes they're small like that, but yeah, it took more work. And that's a, an easy example. Melissa was another example of doing the wide grip. It may have been a little bit more work or something different. And that's why people avoid the solution because it means more work. And if you're always avoiding the work, you're never going to find success. Riley mentioned failure. You're going to fail. You're going to lose. You have to learn how to shrug those off as learning lessons. Absolutely everyone takes a loss. And the reality is more people take a loss more often than they win. But that's what makes those wins so special is you earn them. They're not just giving you. You earn them. And that takes work. We talk a lot about, like, response for PRs and getting stronger like you the stronger that you get the more neurological pathways you have to create and the more that you do create um, your brain does those not for just physical things they do those for mental things as well if you're constantly um, if you're constantly taking the negative or you're constantly always altering your thoughts to focusing on the cans instead of the cans your brain is just going to eventually kind of be hardwired to be that way. And it's hard to break that cycle. And we've talked about how habits take 66 days to form. So it's going to be hard to like retrain your brain to think about things more positively than negatively. Um, but you are when you are consistently every single day being like, I can't do this, I can't do that. Um, this sucks, I suck all this kind of stuff. You're, you're literally creating a habit in your brain to automatically go to that default mode. Um, versus if you are trying and working on it and you say like okay I, I can you know this this didn't work out but i can do this or i i have an area of opportunity to improve here like we talk about this all the time like the way that you phrase things to yourself is absolutely what your brain hears and what your body will do so you have to create a habit in order to like consistently think about the things that you can do and find solutions otherwise you will quite literally be hardwired to only find excuses and if you're not looking for solutions all you're going to find is excuses your brain is your strongest muscle or it's your weakest muscle. You have to train it and condition it the same way you would your bicep, your hamstring, your quad, anything. It is a muscle. Just because you can't actively flex it doesn't mean you can't strengthen it. You just have to become more in tune to how you speak to yourself, so the verbiage you use and what your avenues of opportunity are instead of, you know, dead ends or failures. Um, that's probably a good that's our 10 minutes there for the success segment. Let's jump <laughs> in some, some questions here. We've got a lot of questions this week. You got a lot of coaching questions, training questions, uh, life questions and Every now and again, somebody asks a weird question, like, what's your favorite treat? But we'll skip those. <laughs> you don't want to know? I already know what your favorite treat is. It's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We actually, um, you wanted to talk about this one. So this is actually Mike's um, question. It is, when is, when is an appropriate time to adjust one rep max, assuming training percentages and no injury, is how he yeah. wrote it. Generally, when people send me questions, if I don't answer, I just think they're silly questions. So I don't put the time to answer them. But if I, if I didn't answer them, sometimes they require a little bit more detail. This is one that requires a little bit more detail because he's asking when he should up his one rep max within a training program or training paradigm because it's common for people to do that without understanding when, where, or why without testing it per se. So he does coach some people and it might be a good question to ask because not everyone competes every like five or six months. Some people go a year or two without competing. So when should you up your one rep max? 
It's a great question. And what this really stems down from is a lot of linear periodization programs won't start with your actual max. So if you're coming off of a competition and you know, let's say your max is 500 and you're designing a new program, you can take your max off of 500. If it's been a while or you're coming back from an injury or something like that, you might start in a different range or if you're starting a different programming style. This is really popular in things like 531, Juggernaut, Fifth Set, where you use 90% of your actual max as training max, but every single block you up it five pounds on upper body movements, 10 pounds on lower body movements with over time, after about four or five blocks, you're at your actual training max, plus you've accrued the volume. It's lowered intentionally because the volume gets higher with the rep maxes that those three systems use or linear periodization uses. Like Ed Cohn uses the same thing. He might take 90% of his max for a 16 week cycle, which was four week blocks and start at a certain percentage and it would go up every block a small amount. It's very popular in linear periodization. If you're not using a linear periodization model or doing a long-term development approach, you're just doing cycles that are weekly, you don't need to up your max unless you've actually tested it because you're doing yourself a disservice when you start thinking, well, it's been three months, so I'm going to go ahead and add 10 pounds in my bench press. You might not be 10 pounds stronger just because you're training. And the stronger you get and the longer you do this, the less likely you are 10 pounds stronger. Where you see these gains happen so rapidly is in that first and second year where you start to gain those 100 pounds, 200 pounds on your total over that first year, year and a half, two years. Then it starts slowing down to 60 pounds in your total and 30 pounds in total. And then you get to a point where you're lucky if you get five to 10 pounds in your total. So you can't just linearly up it all the time and say, well, okay, it's been a block, so I'm gonna add five pounds in my bench and 10 pounds in my squat. You may not have earned it. Now, caveat to that is, what if you start seeing it? And that is why a lot of systems will use rep maxes as a testing method instead of the actual max. Because if you were to get, say, 80% of your max for seven reps, there's a good chance it's not your 80% anymore. You might've gotten a little bit stronger or 90% for five. You know, most people are probably good for 90% for two to three and on a great day four, but very rarely. But if you're getting 90% for five, there's a good chance your max has gone up. If that's the case, by all means, at the end of that block, or if you're not testing your actual max, maybe add five to tens to it and start going off of that. If you are testing it, just save it, keep building, keep working, and, and work your way up to that testing protocol, whether it's a mock meet or you're just testing one lift or you have the actual meet coming up. People tend to get frustrated when they arbitrarily raise their training maxes because they just think it's been a certain amount of time and then they can't hit their numbers. I've had people do that, not tell me, and I'm putting 75% from sets of five that they should be able to hit, and they're like, I only got three reps. I'm like, why are you only getting three reps of 75%? Well, I got my training max for like 20 pounds because it's been six months. Who said to do that? I didn't. <laughs> We're not in 531. We're not, we didn't start at 90% where you can add arbitrarily like that. You have to understand the system you're following. You have to understand the direction you're going. And it helps if you choose, Riley's talk about this often for a goal, a deadline of where you're going to be tested. If you're not competing for one whole year, that doesn't mean you can't implement some level of testing within your programs, whether it be a rep max at a high percentage or a mock meet or a lift is just trending really well, you wanna test it, talk to your coach, set that time frame up, build towards that testing. But never just arbitrarily add more numbers to your max because it's been time. As a, as a coach talking about this, if I notice that someone is like consistently hitting rep PRs, um, I will probably do a little calculation on a projection and see if those rep PRs are projecting them past their one rep max. Um, if that's happening and they're trending well, I will generally try to not push them towards hitting a max, but I will push them more towards that max end range. That way I can see how things are moving above 90% before I make a uh, assumption that their max has gone up. Or if it's a good time in the program, I will push them to a heavy single and see how it feels and let them know like, hey, you can take 
um, a range from here, you know, from like 97 to 102.5% um, based on how it feels. Um, but if I notice that a lifter is consistently being like, rep PR, rep PR, rep PR, rep PR, I'm going to want to know. So I'll probably do a projection. Um, and from there, if that projection is like consistently above um, whatever their max was, and it's consistently showing me that like at a triple and a double is projecting over it, I will probably adjust a little bit um, on my end. I actually physically write out um, numbers for my clients. I know Trevor, you leave percentages in, but I will actually calculate the number that I want just because I'm kind of neurotic that way. Um, and it's easier for me to be like, okay, you have to stay within this pound range. But if I notice that they are consistently trending up in rep PRs, then it's probably a good indication that they've um, improved their one rep max. But that caveat to that is some people are really, really good at reps. And some people, if, the longer that you work with the client, the more that you'll know if they're good with reps or if they're good with absolute power. Um, and so you can kind of make an adjustment based off of that. But um, that would generally be what I would do is I would probably look at the numbers and see if there's something that is telling me that I can make a trend upward in their one rep max. Yeah. And, you know, caveat to what Riley just said, I want to make this clear. Um, if you're doing sets of five on the SSB and all of a sudden you're doing sets of five on the SSB and you have a belt, belt list, that's not a rep max. That's not a, a rep PR. That's just a belt list PR. It's not the same as a max PR. But if your rep max at 80% was five reps and all of a sudden you got six reps, that's a rep max PR. But just taking the belt off and calling it a PR isn't a PR. That's just a beltless PR. So people get that confused. Like, well, I'm trending upwards. You're trending upwards beltless. <laughs> You're not trending upwards in maximal weight here. So there's a little bit of a difference. And that's going to give you confidence and it does build your trunk and torso, which is good. But it's not the same as an actual rep max where you can just assume that you're that much stronger because of it. So you have to know what your indicators of strength really are. Yep. Was there a question that came through? It was just a question of how we got started powerlifting. Um, come to a seminar. We'll both explain that. <laughs> That's not one for the podcast. It's just more of a get to know you question. So come to a seminar. We'll explain that in detail. All right. What's our first or next question? Um, suggested supplemental lifts for getting good drive off the floor for sumo and conventional. Conventional, obviously, people always talk about this. The go-to is usually some level of a deficit or an extended range. And people always almost go to the deficit because they think that's how they're going to use their quads to get more drive off the floor. And I will tell you watching an abundance of lifters, just learning how to use the quads isn't always gonna give them more drive off the floor because where most lifters lose their floor is their latin thoracic extension. So believe it or not, a full range snatch grip deadlift where you're really learning how to accelerate the shoulders and lock your lats down is probably going to help you with your floor break much more because it really forces you to engage that upper back in the deadlift. And then learning the quads secondary to that is better. That's why abundance of people will do deficit deadlifts and their deficit, I'm sorry, and their deadlift is still jack shit is because they don't know how to use their lats and their thoracic extension within the pull. So I would usually cycle one or both of those at a time to one, learn how to use the quads, but two, those quads are meaningless unless you can get your lats involved. Because there's a lot of people whose hips shoot up. That means they know how to use their quads. It means they don't know how to use their back if their hips are shooting up. So I would probably identify which is it. Are they getting lat tension but not using their quads? Then it's a deficit. Are they getting no lat tension but they're able to use their quads? Then it's the snatch grip and so forth. Uh, snatch grip is great regardless of whether you pull sumo or conventional because that's usually the caveat for most people. When we talk about a sumo position that people don't understand and they miss lockout, it's because they don't know how to get their back in the movement. So snatch grip deadlifts are going to help everyone all the time. Don't care what style you pull. Whenever my deadlift falls apart, the first thing I do is go back to snatch grip and it comes right back. Yeah, I love snatch grip. I 
I like deficits also, but I generally find that deficits are probably more beneficial for actually learning how to grind out a slow rep, in my opinion. Like extended range, generally a deficit is one to two inches. That's an extra one to two inches that you have to pull. Um, a lot of people with deficits are essentially squatting into the lift, you know, so they're going, like Trevor mentioned, they're going to get good leg drive off the floor because they're squatting into the lift. So that's what they, they're using majority of it anyways. Um, but I find deficits to be super beneficial for grinding out a long um, or grinding out a heavy set. But snatch grip is, fi snatch grip fixes so much from your starting position. That would be what I would recommend for both um, conventional and sumo position. Yeah, and there's, I don't think it's in my IGTV because it was before IGTV, but I have a great tutorial on snatch grips and what you're actually looking for and understanding what the snatch grip is and the position we should be looking for because it's probably the lift that's butchered most. Everyone turns it into some type of snatch grip RDL. It's pretty hideous and it makes me want to cry. Well, and also majority of people don't actually use a true snatch grip and they'll send me videos and their hands are like three fingers wider than normal. And, <laughs> no, 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 you have to put your fingers but on there. Need to be outside those ring sets for a snatch grip because they know one snatch it inside of that unless they're that's also the only lift that i am cool with anyone wearing straps on that's it because yep. eventually it's going to supersede your grip absolutely yeah okay um benching and feeling discomfort in front delt slash chest uh we're feeling so normally when someone says i feel pain in the front delt usually it's lat tightness but the fact that you're saying it in the chest as well is probably something a little bit differently that might be something you want to get checked out a little bit more. I don't want to hypothetically say it could be this, it could be that without sight seeing a why. But if you're feeling pain across the chest and across the front delt, that's where the, the, the lateral, lateral uh, bicipital groove is where the pec attaches and you're feeling that's the front delt that you're going to feel the lateral bicipital groove and across the chest. That level of tightness is some type of restriction. So either you're not engaging your mid-back very well or you don't have very good extra rotation mobility and you're just so internally rotated that's literally grinding that capsule in there every time you come down the bench press and maybe that's what you're feeling. So I would identify a couple things as far as shoulder mobility drills to improve extra rotation of the shoulder. Um, I would also, believe it or not, stretch out your biceps because they do run underneath or over that, that pec tendon, sorry. And that could be compressing it and pushing it down. So a bicep stretch, an external rotation stretch. If that's not relieving it, it's time to actually see a clinician and get it looked at because you're going to be doing more harm than good by playing doctor. So if a couple stretches don't relieve the pain, get it checked out. This is, yeah, I don't have a direct answer for this, but wanted to touch on this aspect. Majority of the time where you're feeling discomfort is not where it's at. Usually it's an antagonist. That's why Trevor mentioned like your mid back or your external rotation, because those are going to be the opposite action of the muscle. So if you're feeling a pain somewhere specifically, it's probably not localized to that specific area. Like you need to essentially pull the muscle in the opposite direction to get relief. But when this question was asked on my story, um, I had probably four or five people responded all with different things that they went to see a PT for. And they were like, oh, this is when I felt this, this is what was wrong when I went to the PT. Five different answers. So that tells you that things aren't, things like this cannot be generalized necessarily. So just because that you're feeling pain somewhere and someone else is also feeling pain somewhere that doesn't, and they're the same place, that doesn't mean that you both have the same injury, but that's where you need to go see a PT so that way they can actually diagnose what it is and they're qualified to do that. We are not necessarily qualified to do that. We can like make recommendation based off of past experience um, and what we've seen to work. And obviously we understand muscles and how they move and pull and whatnot. But yeah, if you're experiencing pain consistently and it's not going away with whatever you do, then you have to go see someone or else it's just going to keep persisting. Yeah. 
Children's a complex structure that moves in seven different directions. So there can be seven different things that's wrong with it that's causing that. But generally, we're rather talking about some level of reciprocal inhibition. So if you're ultra weak in the backside and you're pushing forward from the front side, that's you know that reciprocal inhibition shutting off the backside. You're losing stability. And you're getting compression of some kind, causing that pain. So, how do you cue improve synchronizing knee extension to hip extension in the conventional deadlift to improve lockout? So cue knee extension to hip extension in the conventional lockout, it's going to vary a little bit in someone's pull style. Some people have more of a spastic strength style where they have a high hip and they're more hamstring dominant. And for them, it's just a matter of cueing that actual hip extension. Some people who have longer arms and knees more forward, they might do a little bit more knee extension to finish that. I wouldn't cue unless I saw the lift per se, because I don't know how that person's moving. Don't send me your videos. You're not a client. It's not fair to them. Don't do that. But, <laughs> but it's one of those things where you have to realize the synchronization starts from the bottom. We drill this all the time. If you're not able to synchronize the top, it means you're in a poor position from the bottom. I would look at addressing your starting position of how you're moving, because if you can't lock the hips and the quads at the same time, then you're starting with them in a disadvantageous position from the bottom, because that's how you start is how you're going to finish. So if you're starting poorly, you're going to finish poorly. If it's generally, like we mentioned with the other one, if your knees are locking before your hips, you probably don't have great upper back engagement. If your hips are locking before your knees, you probably are pulling from your lumbar spine. You're probably hyperextending and lobar extending. And that's causing that, that excessive hip extension. With, it's going to break the knees. It's going to cause them to buckle and bend. So you have to work on your torso position, your lat engagement, or your starting position to realize what's causing your unsynchronized lockout. One cue isn't going to fix a poor position. You have to identify why your position's off in the first place. Sometimes when I see this, I tend to see that people are hyper-focused on the hip extension aspect. So they're focusing so hard on like leaning back into their lockout and like really they're trying to like do, you know, what everyone yells and hips, 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 hips. And they're trying to push the hips through so hard that they forget that they have to like lock their quads too. So I find that when a lifter is hyper-focused on like, oh, I have to lean back really, really hard to lock out this conventional uh, deadlift, they are losing the ability to knee extend because they're so hyper-focused on that like lumbar extension. And then they get soft knees and they're not locked out anyways. So I, I feel like it tends to be a hyper-focus on one or the other rather than realizing that they do have to happen uh, at the same time. That's going to come down to your start position like Trevor was talking about. You see this in old school deadlifters who thought they have to have a vertical shin and they would say, wait on your heels, wait on your heels. Dude, do me a favor. Try and jump from your heels and see how high you get, and then try and jump from your toes and see how high you get. One of them causes hip extension, the other one causes lumbar extension. So if you're leaning back on your heels to try and lock out a deadlift, you're screwing yourself because you're not able to use your legs in that movement at all. Just like a squat, tension should be midfoot, push those toes down, treat it more like a slow static jump than anything else. But if you're, if you're grinding your way back towards your heels, chances are you're going to have a soft lockout or a hard lumbar lockout and you have no leg pressure coming through. So if you're a coach who still shouts, heels, 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 I want to punch you in the scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, next question is also about hyperextending. Um, why do sumo pullers hyperextend so much compared to conventional? They don't. Whoever you're looking at doesn't know how to lift. Um, most sumo pullers end up kyphotic because it lengthens their arms in their position and they end up in a posterior pelvic tilt. I don't know who you're looking at who ends up in extension, but they're not a good sumo puller, so stop watching them. Just change the channel. The only thing <laughs> that I can think of that may possibly be um, – uh posing this question is that it tends to be more sumo pullers that have to um look up like towards the ceiling to lock out and that's more of like a balance type of thing like that wants to keep them balanced because they're a little bit like you do that sometimes where you're so fast and like explosive off the floor that when you you will look straight up to try to keep balance or look straight 
try to keep balance. Um, that's the only thing that I can think that would be actually legitimately posing this question is if they see someone consistently looking straight up, but that's not hyperextending. That's just searching for balance and stability. Right. Yeah. If you're, if he's referring to the lumbar spine, like hyperextending lumbar, that's kind of the complete opposite of how you want to lift CMO. Most people have that posterior pelvic tuck to get their glutes in and drive through their hips and quads and keep their torso stacked. Um, a lot of people will cervically extend to look up. If you are already in a lumbar curve, lower on a curve to some degree, and you have a lumbar arch, you probably want to keep your chin more neutral and down. If you are able to go pretty hard posterior, you probably want to keep your head up because that's going to allow you to create some more neutral position. It's just a matter of knowing your positions, but you don't see a majority of sumo pullers in some level of extension. Uh, the cervical extension to some degree, yes, it helps them get tall but not everyone pulls that way. A great example of that is Jamal Browner doesn't pull in cervical extension. He pulls in neutral, but he lives in lumbar extension. So for him, by tucking his chin down, looking slightly down, puts him in the exact position he needs to be in to stay from neck to nuts or occiput to anus. He's stacked together in that line. And then the opposite of that is someone like uh, Pazdiv. Pazdiv, a great Russian puller, would go into complete cervical extension, only head all the way up to elongate, and he lived a little bit more of a kyphotic position. So it put him in the proper position. You have to know your proportions. I rarely talk about this, about comparing with open piloting. Same thing happens with lifting. You can look at a lifter and start comparing, well, they do this. If you aren't built like them or don't have the same parents, it's probably not gonna help you. No, had blinders. Okay, um, three pieces of advice for longevity in the sport. This is the one I did like the peas, right? <laughs> the three peas. <laughs> I don't even remember. That was like two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, I talked about perseverance and passion. Those were two of the peas that I remember. Oh, patience. Perseverance, passions, and patience. Those are my three pieces of advice. You know, it's going to, like we talked about at the beginning, you're going to face some losses. You're going to have some struggles. So you have to persevere through all those. If you don't love this, you're not going to want to persevere through this. So that's your passion. And then patience. This is a long game. You don't see people come to the sport in the first meet and kill it. So many people are like, I have to win. It's my first meet. You don't have to actually win. You have to be patient because where you are now is so far from where you're going to be five years from now. This isn't a sport where you get to the very top in the first year, second year, third year. Only a complete outlier gets very high that fast within the first three years. And those outliers sometimes injure themselves out or burn themselves out mentally because they don't necessarily have that patience. It's very rare. And that's one of the reasons why they are the outlier because they respond so differently. But 90% of you, 95% of you probably need to under understand your why. That's your passion. You need to understand that not every day is going to be a great day. That's your per perseverance and persistence. And then you have to really be in this for the long haul. And so I saw somebody like, like Joe just said mobility. If you aren't passionate about this, you're not going to do your mobility. If you know you have a restriction and you can't persevere, you're not going to do your mobility. These mental aspects have to come before the physical aspects. We talked about your brain being your strongest muscle. You must tell yourself that this is what you have to do to get what you want. If you, if you don't will it and you just want it, it's not going to be there. You have to will it as well. And so the, the longevity in the sport doesn't come down to the program you follow. It doesn't come down to the mobility you do. It doesn't come down to exercise selection, who your coach is or what gym you train at. It comes down to you. What are you willing to do? But more importantly, what are you willing to wait for? When everyone tries to rush and maxes out all the time and doesn't save it for the platform and doesn't work on long-term athletic development and just works on, let me get 200 pounds on my total in the next six weeks because I'm competing, you are the ones who injure yourselves out or burn yourselves out. If you ignore deload week and treat it like it's a max effort week instead, uh, whenever I used, to, I, used to, I used to bitch about this all the time and call them out, I would have lifters on their pivot week or deload add weight like PR. Dude, no. 
that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be delaying and dissipating fatigue at this point so we can start another block and build more. If you've tested yourself on a deload week, you've shot yourself in the foot because you're going backwards, not forwards. So you really have to understand that your why is your passion, your ability to have resolve when things don't go your way is your perseverance and persistence. But most importantly, the number one thing above all else is patience. This is a long-term process, not a short-term process. Have patience. I 100% agree with the patience aspect because uh, we kind of mentioned this earlier, when you're a newbie, it's easy to add 100 pounds to your total, um, you know, if it's your first, second, third meter, whatever. But when you're year five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, whatever, um, into your journey, then it is going to become like fighting tooth and nail to add five pounds to your total. And like, there's gonna be times where you have injuries, and you're going to regress. And there will be times where life happens, and you're going to regress. Having patience, I think is definitely up there. Um, being regimented with it is very uh, important, I think, as well, like Edward Blair mentioned, like not going off program, and that kind of follows with this too. Like your progression is based off of how consistent you can do something. So if you're consistently on program, and you're consistently following the plans, you're going to see more results than someone who's just willy nilly out there doing whatever it is that they want to do and going off program all the time, because that's more when, that's when they're more prone to injury is because they are uh, not consistently following the plan. And they're going to shoot themselves in the foot by not consistently following that plan. Like you have to put in constant effort in order to get better. You're not just going to get stronger because you want to get stronger. And you think that this is fun right now. Like you're going to get stronger because you put in the work to get stronger. So being regimented and like, you can still live life and like do whatever it is that you want to do. You can still go on vacation. You can still do all these things or whatever, you know, like have a life. Like you don't, if you're someone who doesn't want to be powerlifting to be like the only thing in your life, that's fine. It, that's not what, like when we say regimented or like, um, holding yourself accountable doesn't mean that you have to shut everything off in order to get stronger. It just means that you have to consistently work hard at the thing it is that you want to do. So if that's training four days a week, you have to train four days a week and you have to put your all into that. If that includes doing your mobility or daily homework, you have to do these things. Um, that means consistently eating and like consistently sleeping and consistently hydrating. Like that's what you have to do in order to achieve these things. So you can be regimented and still live your life, but you have to be regimented if you have a goal. Um, the last one, uh, I talk about it in seminars, like being gritty or like having, uh, I think you said perseverance, like having mental fortitude, basically. Um, this stuff gets really hard and really shitty sometimes. Like when you're in pain and you have an injury and you're coming back from that, or, um, it's not, it doesn't feel great to grind out a rep that is your new PR. Like you, you think you're going to get crushed the whole time. So having the ability to be like, that was hard. I like that was fun, you know, like I enjoyed that because I love what I'm doing. Um, but that was hard, like being able to get through the hard workouts and being able to get through when it's really, really challenging or when you're um, trying to hit a PR after you haven't in six months, like all of that comes with being gritty and knowing that like, this isn't going to be easy. It's if you want to call this a sport, it's a quote unquote extreme sport, you know, like however you want to call it, like it's not, it's not just like table tennis or whatever. Like it requires uh, like shuffleboard. <laughs> I'm probably worse at table tennis. So I don't know. Table tennis would probably cause me more pain than powerlifting does. But um, you have to realize that this is a very uncomfortable sport. Like that's what Matt just said, get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's not, 
it's not fun. And like geared powerlifting is a test of pain tolerance more than it is of anything. Powerlifting is a test of how willing you are to be uncomfortable to sacrifice for getting stronger. Um, so you have to be gritty. You have to be gritty. You have to have mental fortitude and be tough. We'll let Riley have a minute to work out her table tennis elbow. And we'll go to <laughs> <laughs> table, table tennis elbow. It's a real condition. <laughs> All right, what could be causing me to feel my T-spine, C-spine vertebrae to click when locking out sumo? I've noticed this happens mostly when my back is fatigued or neck position is all over. Well, you kind of answered your own question. Anytime you have a space or injury to a certain area, which is very common for a lot of us for various reasons, car accidents, falls, climbing a tree as a kid, doesn't matter. If there's any joint space, you might get that adjustment because there's space in the joint where the gas releases or that click feeling or that sliding motion. That doesn't mean it's injured now, it just means at some point it was, but you answered your own question by saying you're fatigued or your neck is all over. If you're not holding static position, there's reason for that joint space to move. So you might hear a popping sound or a clicking sound. If it's not causing pain, I wouldn't worry about it, but it is giving you feedback that you are losing ideal position when that's happening. Because if it, it's not happening on your regular stuff when you're not fatigued or you're not neck all over, then it means you're getting some feedback that you're not in the best possible position. You need to work on things to strengthen and hold those positions. I always talk about it, condition the position. People come off the platform like, well, why did I miss that? And you weren't strong enough. And they're like, no, my legs can do this. It's like, yeah, but you couldn't hold it with your upper back. So you didn't condition the position. Somewhere in the chain, you weren't strong enough yet. You have to find that part of the chain and that's what you work on getting stronger so you can show your true absolute strength. Yeah, the clicking isn't necessarily always, that's what I usually say is like the clicking isn't necessarily always concerning unless there's like a pain, radiating pain or something pain associated with it. But I mean, we've all lived life like I, uh, you know, like if your fingers crack, like there's joint, that's space between your joints, but there's not pain there, you know, like that's that you've had fingers jammed before or whatever, like I've broken all my fingers playing volleyball, my fingers crack all the time. But um, so not, not necessarily a huge deal. Uh, it can sound kind of scary today. My sternum popped while I was doing a meadow six way shoulders. And I was like, Whoa, that was weird. <laughs> All right. Matt's question on this topic. How hard are we doing accessories on deload? That's always a good question. There's not necessarily an arbitrary number, but I, I tell people to conserve it back. So sometimes I tell people when they're their first dealer to tell them to conserve back 10 to 15% on accessories or keep them in a range of something like RPE seven, where you're leaving three reps or so in the tank. You know, obviously we don't want to push accessories during dealer week. First week of a block, give yourself like an RPE eight or nine with the accessories. There might be new movements. Give yourself room to grow from that. Then after that, start pushing them all towards 10. And I always say, if there's a lift you have to fail, it should be an accessory lift because that means you're pushing that accessory work to try and grow stronger within that area. So if you're going to fail lifts, make it accessories. When it comes to deload, back them down the same way, keep them RPE seven or under. And they're just trying to maintain conditioning with those motions and movements, but you're not trying to push them anymore because otherwise you're just accruing more fatigue. Yeah, RP7. <laughs> or RIR3, if you like to go in reverse. Mental toughness, overcoming people who don't believe what we do as a part of <laughs> Joey, Joey, is, it's not really a question, it's a statement. Overcoming people who don't believe what we do as part of to be a sport, does it matter? I don't care about those people. Yeah, does it matter? Are we athletic? No, we waddle up to a bar and we squat three, you know, three attempts and we bench three attempts, we lay down, somebody hands you the bar and you pick something up off the floor. Is it an athletic sport? No. Is it a sport? Yes. But does their opinion change how you see yourself and what you're going to do in a sport? Absolutely not. So if you're doing anything in life for, for somebody else's validation of you doing it, it's not going to go very well because that means you are passionate about it. You're just trying to get attention from it. Same way. 
I know Joey played like uh, college football for the league because he's been to a seminar to talk about it. You know, were you playing football because you loved it and you wanted to play football or were you playing football because you wanted the validation from somebody else to say, hey, he's a real athlete who plays football. It doesn't matter. Do it because you love it. Was it baseball? I think it was both, but I think he did play college football. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, majority of people like, majority of people that don't powerlift have no idea what powerlifting is and they're going to like not they're going to judge you anyways because they don't even understand what it is. Every time someone asks me, like, like you lift weights and they do like the overhead <laughs> press. And I'm like, no, I, I, I power lift. And they're like, oh, is that where you put it over your head? No, that is not where I put it over my head. So people don't understand, but it's fine. You're probably never going to communicate with those people in an extensive type of way anyways. And if you feel like personally, if you feel like you have to justify yourself to someone or you have to explain yourself to someone, you're wasting your breath anyways. Um, I don't, I'm at the point in my life where I'm not going to explain myself to anyone. Like if I want to do something or if I don't want to do something, uh, all I have to do is say, yes, I want to do that. Or no, I don't want to do that. And if uh, someone has anything to say about that, that's a them problem, not a me problem. So I'm not going to waste my time justifying what it is that I want to do or not to do to someone who has no concept of what that thing means to me, I guess. So uh, you're just wasting your time, wasting your breath. Yeah. Uh, Joey's, Joey's going, like, whenever they ask if I lift up, they work out, or you just tell them a little. Um, I always like to piss Riley off because some guy randomly, had, uh, you know, irritated her by asking her if she does CrossFit and then asked her if she goes to LA Fitness and then asked her if she leg presses. So anytime somebody asks when we're on like a plane or going somewhere, she looks like she loves the leg press. And you should see the scowl I get. It's fantastic. <laughs> Is she going to give it to me now? Probably. <laughs> She's like, I can't believe you told them all that. Well, yeah, then so my legs and I'm like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I yeah. All right. What's our next question? Um, how to address a weakness in a lift and prescribe specific variations or accessories. So we go over this in pretty good detail in seminars, make a point to come to a seminar because we go over, Riley will go over exercise selection and, and she'll break it down to be completely intentful from the main lift to the secondary lift to the third lifts. And we always talk about, you know, your strength builders, your lift builders versus your muscle builders. And she goes into details at each one there. It's a little bit more in depth than we can go on for this podcast right now. So owe it yourself to pay the money and come to a seminar and learn these things. But you're going to have to look at what I talked about in one of the previous questions is, Finding what doesn't allow you to hold that position or pattern, identifying what muscle that is, and then strengthen it. But don't just strengthen it arbitrarily. Like if you have weak quads, leg extensions aren't going to make your squat stronger. Front squats and high bar squats and heel elevated squats and omni squats, those things will because you're training that muscle group within that pattern. That's what matters here when we're dealing with the three lifts. The lifts never change. It's always squat, bench, and deadlifts. But you change. I believe Greg posted something. I haven't even got to yet, but Greg posted something that quotes me on that. Powerlifting doesn't change, you do. You change from your style, your mechanics, your proportions, how much muscle mass you have, how much neurological efficiency you have. These things will change and you adapt to that. You're gonna identify needs as you go and they will never stay the same. You can always just say, well, I have weak quads, I have weak quads. If you keep telling yourself you have weak quads, you're gonna keep having weak quads. The solution is train them within the pattern. So identify an area of opportunity and then put a lot of work in, in that area of opportunity, even though it's uncomfortable. If something is difficult for you to do, that's because it's identifying a weaker muscle group and maybe it attacks your ego, but put some time and put some volume in there and build it to a strength. That's what you're going to do. Can I give you specifics here right now? No, because you haven't given me an example of where you're breaking down. We do this in detail in every seminar. We will ask people where they miss their squat, where they miss their bench, where they miss their deadlift, and start putting together an idea of showing them 
this is how you would program for that. This is how you would build around that. This is what you're going to take from that. And that's one of the things that people pay most attention to is because you don't want to do something for no reason. You don't want to have a movement that's in there that is just junk volume. Single arm chest flies are junk volume. Single arm leg extensions are junk volume. They're not doing anything to help you build your lifts. Make sure the movements you are doing are intentful and are and addressing your areas of opportunity. Do you have a good coach, good program that is intentionally specific towards you? All of your movements should have a reason. Yes, there are times when we all do leg extensions and chest flies and whatever. Generally, as opposed to me, sometimes it's in there to help um, a lifter who's maybe newer who needs to either figure out how to move their body or figure out how to quote unquote flex a muscle or figure out where they are. Like those will be in the, those kind of things will be in there for more beginner lifters. But as you progress and as you advance, you're going to have less of that volume because one, you're stronger and you don't need it necessarily anymore. And you have the body awareness um, to know how to actually integrate that muscle uh, in your movements. But I think that exercise selection is one thing that, one, I really like talking about it. I think it's a lot of fun, but I think it's something that's not necessarily paid as much attention to in programming. Like it's whatever kind of is the hot movement of the month. Um, sometimes when I'm writing programs, I'm like, man, I feel like I have running out of exercises to use because like, I feel like there's such a finite amount in my brain that I find effective and that address a specific issue. And that's where programming can get kind of boring because yes, it's exciting to run a program where everything is a new exercise every single week and you're having fun and it's ex exciting. It's great for the lifter who has a little bit of that attention uh, issue. But majority of the time, like the movements that you need to work on are going to be relatively basic movements and you have to consistently work on them like we talk about, but they have to be intentional for where your area of opportunity is. So yeah, sure. Every once in a while post meet, you're going to throw in like the fun stuff and you're going to get bicep curls. Like I have curls right now because I am enjoy a good pump um but like you're gonna get those things too but majority of the time what your your lift the order of your exercises should progress in a way that they build off of each other basically in order to hit your area of opportunity so yeah this is one of my favorite things to talk about at seminars so i enjoy this aspect and don't be afraid to include the same lift for back-to-back -back blocks if you're getting a lot from a lift keep it in there you're getting a lot from it right until it dies then change it up all right, what's our next question? Um, what's the best way for an older guy to balance training and a strenuous job? <laughs> I like this question. I, I'm trying to remember who answered it. It might have been Larry Bullock. I don't remember. But this goes along the lines of being very purposeful and being very intentful and not putting in any junk volume. It's one of those things where you might have to lower training frequency to three days a week instead of four days a week or from four days a week instead of five days a week. Or you might also have to incorporate deloads more frequently. I have some lifters who have not necessarily older in age, but older in training age. You know, Corey Clark's not old in age. He's, he's under 40. He's in his, his 30s. But he has a family and he's got about 20 plus years of training history. So he has a long training history and a lot of accrued injuries and time and a lot of muscle mass. So someone like that would do three weeks on and a one week deload every, every third week. Where I have other people who might be going five weeks before the deload. It really depends more on your training age. Now this, this person mentioned they also have a very demanding job. So this is, this is understanding aspects outside of the gym of how well do you hydrate? How well do you sleep? Do you take enough downtime? Do you things that help enhance recovery? What I mean by that is low intensity walking, things like meditation, reading, things that are not stressful, 
we're bombarded by so many stimuluses all day, every day between the television, the phone and work and family and kids. Having time where you, uh, there's a book, um, Unplugged. I really wish I could remember who wrote it right now. I know it's, it's conjunction with two people writing. One of the one is the exercise science professor in California, but the book is called Unplugged and it's literally all about changing that stimulus that we seek all the time and to focus on breathing patterns to lower ourselves into the parasympathetic system and to have time away from our phones and have time away from our television. It's not who we like hippie shit. It's how much these things impact our recovery because it's constantly bombarding us with light and stimulus that we didn't normally have in our evolutionary process. So for example, Riley and I both use this. She's usually done by her on her phone by 9.30 and it goes away. Mine's about 10 p.m. and I usually shut the phone off. It's on the dessert. It's on the dessert anyways, but it's one of those things where it goes away. I don't want the light. I don't want the distraction. I'll prepare myself for the next day, uh, either with like just a radio on the background or something quiet, something that minimizes that constant stimulation. If you have a demanding job and you want to train on top of that, I would look for ways outside of the gym to minimize stimulation and to not allow yourself to get stressed or hyped up. So reduce training frequency, increase deload frequency, and spend time away from television, time away from the phone where it's just quiet or relaxing because the more relaxed you get, that's actually when we recover. The more amped you get, the less recovery you're going to have because your body's always stressed out, spitting out cortisol. Brian, yes. Andy Galpin. It's Galpin, not Gallon. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate that. Kyle is, you see the barbell Viking here. He's underneath. He's also responsible for the Full Send Initiative, which is teaching everyone in powerlifting how to spot, load, and run a platform. Uh, big ups to him because that's like a pet peeve for all, almost all of us how a platform is ran or operated. So go follow the Full Send Initiative, and uh, it will really help you understand, especially if you put on meets or your meet director or you ever spot and load in a meet. Great teaching cues there on how to spot a lifter, how to load a bar, how to communicate in the platform to have an efficiently run meet. Um, yeah, I have a couple of lifters who are blue collar. That's what they do. They work, you know, 12 hour shifts all day outside construction, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And the main thing is making sure that they are deloading on a consistent schedule. Like I have Nate who deloads every fourth week because that's as long he's younger. Um, so he can deal He deloads every fourth week because that's when I notice his verbiage starts to go down where he's like, you know, by week, by the end of week three, he's like, man, this is tough having a rough time and it, it is consistent now where every fourth week he has to deload um the like trevor mentioned the amount of exercises that are chosen for someone who's in like more of a blue collar job will be much more direct like it may only be um like nate's deadlift days i think are only four movements because like that's about the amount of volume that he can handle without feeling run down and like beaten up and he's a little bit younger but like working a blue collar job is is tough that's hard carrying and moving all the time so they don't need a lot of low back conditioning it's already conditioned yeah so focusing on the other aspects like trevor mentioned like he is very low back strong and uh he'd probably be really good at strongman because he carries like huge metal pipes around all day and like just very odd objects and whatnot but yeah we generally work on more like core and anterior chain work rather than posterior chain because he's doing all that stuff all the time anyways but just being really mindful and uh intentional with the exercises that you choose you don't you probably don't need the fluff you don't need the bicep curls you don't need the chest flies um try deal you know like if i think he's on four days a week but maybe three days a week is all you can handle because that's because you work five days a week from nine to five mm -hmm. um lifting heavy shit all the time so three days a week is fine because if you it seems like not a lot but if three days a week is what you can actually recover from that's what you'll see the most uh 
progression from. If you can't recover from four days, it doesn't matter. You're just beating yourself into the ground anyways. So being intentional with the amount of days that you work out, what you can squeeze into your schedule and like what exercises that you're choosing for yourself and paying attention to your deload schedule is probably going to be the most beneficial for you. But it's not that you can't do it. It's, it's easy to find a way to make it work. Yeah, I mean, example of that, Rachel, who I posted yesterday, she, you know, she's a mom, she has multiple businesses. She doesn't have a, a demanding physical job, but she has multiple businesses and job, and she does do like creative artwork where she makes things that she sells on there. And she can only train three days a week because she's got a lot going on, but she's still total 1260 training three days a week. And basically we just have her broken down into a squat bench deadlift day, one back accessory, bench work with shoulders and arms and back accessories. And then she has a deadlift day with a secondary squat that's light usually. And it's just very, very primary focus. There's not a lot of crazy fun stuff in there. She's not doing curls. She's not doing like five times 20 band push downs. There's never been a lot of raising there for her. It's hyper specific, but clearly it worked because she peered her squat, she peered her deadlift, she peered her bench. So it's just one of those things of being hyper specific because you have to, your job is already physically demanding. You don't need the conditioning aspect of a lot of things you've already got there, but deal it more frequently. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, if sumo fails around the knees, should I think about narrowing my stance, assuming it's not a starting position issue? So I, I laugh. This guy asked the same question pretty much every other week for like the last two, three months. And he kept saying it's not a starting position issue. And I don't see your lifts. So I don't know. I just have to go by what people tell me. But he asked the same question. He dropped into my stories yesterday. He asked the same question three different ways, three times. I'm like, I got to look. So I went to his profile. I looked and sure as shit, it was a starting issue. <laughs> Just because he didn't want to admit it to himself doesn't mean it doesn't exist. He had no thoracic extension. He's kyphotic in the upper back on sumo. He was great up the floor, and he was missing out above the knees because his shoulders were then in front of the bar because he didn't know how to thoracically extend and get his hips through. So he got to a point where he was fantastic on the floor, but because he has a lack of mobility in his thoracic extension and the lack of ability to create thoracic extension, he was feeling at the top every time. It wasn't widening his stance, narrowing his stance, changing his grip or lowering his hips, any of that stuff. He just was sternum down the entire time he was trying to pull, and that's not a winning formula for your max effort lifts as far as your deadlift is concerned. Whether it's conventional or sumo, if you have your chest down, it's gonna become a lot more low back dominant, and that doesn't work very well in sumo. It's very hard to lock out a sumo with your low back. More so conventional, you can get away with it, but you're not gonna get away with it in sumo. So he was shaking and missing because his shoulders were in front of the bar when he was trying to pull because he had a poor starting position. So we did answer this one for this guy, and he actually was very appreciative. I'm like, dude, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you do, in fact, have a starting position issue. <laughs> I just got so tired of him asking over and over and over again and not listening to the same answer. I had to look. However, if it's a starting position uh, issue and you are failing around the knees, um, yes, I would assume that your stance is probably too wide and you don't actually have any hip torque or, like, you have no more hip, hip extension because you're, pa you're, like, past your mobility. So if in the off chance that you are the 1% of people who doesn't have a starting position issue, yes, your stance is probably too wide for the mobility that you have with your hips. Generally, people who stand too wide in sumo can't break the floor very well. They start losing floor power, and so you don't even see them get to their knees because they just can't get it off the floor because they're too wide. They can't create the external rotation torque. So, But, yeah, I mean, I, I just I laugh to myself because I'm finally, I'm going to go look. <laughs> he was super nice about it, but, like, yeah, people don't recognize it. And that's one of the caveats when you're getting a bunch of advice from people who don't actually know what they're talking about. They just think they do because they heard something in some article somewhere and they're like, oh, you have this. It's not about the availability virus. It's about what's actually going to help you. And when you have people who truly work with people to improve them, you should probably seek out their advice, not your general gym goer. Uh, um, I used to laugh and people would give unsolicited advice and like, what's your total? Who do you coach? Where are you at? 
none of those questions are answered to my satisfaction, but one of those things. It's like, I don't mean to be, you know, pompous about it, but if you don't know what you're talking about to a level that's above mine, you shouldn't be interjecting your opinion. Yeah. Everyone watching this who thinks that it's not a starting position issue, Trevor just said that you all have shitty starting positions. <laughs> all of you. Uh, what we got? What is this? Man? Is looking forward, bending the neck on deadlifts wrong? I've tried to be in a neutral position, but I can't really seem to stick to it. Just feels too off. It's not wrong. It's not right. I talk about this often. You have to find your ideal position. I'm assuming you typically go into cervical extension on your neck and people are telling you it's off that you should be more neutral. That's going to depend upon your proportions and how you start. If you start rounded and kyphotic, that cervical extension is going to create more neutral. If you're somebody who lives in lumbar spine where the lumbar is a little bit more tilted and you have that lower, lower, excessive lordotic curve, you know, tilting your head up is going to be bad for you because your hips are going to shoot back and you're going to end up in the lower back. For them, dropping the chin is creating more neutral. You have to look at yourself and see where is your body's proportions when you line up at the bottom, and that's going to dictate head position. If you are standing and it's leading to more of a low back lift, then it's the wrong position. If you're flexing and it's leading to complete rounding, then that's the wrong position. There's not going to be a right or wrong for everyone. So to say that the head up is wrong isn't correct. And to say that the head down is wrong isn't correct either. One of them, generally somewhere in that gray area between them, is going to be ideal for you. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, like that, uh, yeah, if you're – if you're someone who already has like your butt tilted up and away from the start of the sumo, tilting your head up and away is only going to keep pushing your hips back and up away from the barbell. And the whole point of sumo is to leverage into the bar. So if you are leveraging away from the bar, that's not your ideal position. So that tuck, um, like I have a more excessive pelvic tuck with my sumo so I can go into a little bit more cervical extension to help get me off the floor. And I noticed that when I look straight ahead, um, I have a harder time, I have a slower time breaking the floor. I'll still break the floor, but that's slower um, versus if I kind of bring my head up a little bit more because like Trevor mentioned, it helps to balance me out a little bit. But majority of the time, what I see with sumo is a high percentage of people have that anterior pelvic tilt especially women, we have that pelvic tilt, and then they're trying to crane their neck up because they're trying to make themselves tall in their chest. You can make yourself tall and you can make yourself, your arms long without lifting. Yeah. That's the whole thing is it's not making your head tall. It's not like someone pulling a string on the top of your head. It's essentially someone pulling a string at the top of your shoulders. So you want to make that as tall as possible and your arms as long as possible, but you can keep your head straight forward without with while making yourself tall basically you know i love cues there's a video on there and i talked about tits tall so i can drop my chin all the way down and still raise my tits up my, my nipples up so nipples up with the head down that is thoracic extension the problem like riley just identified is people go into cervical extension and think that's tall and it's torso tall not head tall there's a difference in torso tall and head tall so tits tall nipples up whatever you got to cue yourself to get there that's our time for today so the podcast is brought to you by culture nutra you also have the Cultivating Strength Program, which is available on Train Heroic. The link is in both of our bios. If you need programming but don't necessarily want coaching, there's Sound 40 a Week Program in there. You guys can join. Your first week is free. If you just choose to join for your first week and see what that's about, you're more than welcome to. Thank you to everyone who shares the podcast when it's released every Monday and shares like these little clips because of the podcast we do over here as well. We appreciate you all. And thank you all to send us our score stories, questions, Q&As that we help answer you and on the live. So, Riley, I will talk to you later. Okay. People, I will talk to you <laughs> next week. <laughs> okay, but they got it. All right, someone did. Thank you guys. <laughs> all right, so we'll see you guys all next week. Thank you very much. Bye.